five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Poucher. This is a special edition of the Space Q podcast. In this podcast, recorded at the Cassie Astro 18 Conference in Quebec City, you'll hear from Brigadier General Kevin G. Whale, Director General and Component Commander Space. Canada's military space component is set to grow significantly going forward, in both in terms of personnel and capability. General Whale will provide a status on the space component he leads and explain to us how our defense forces are preparing for the challenges of the future. Welcome, General Wales, to the Space Q podcast. Well, thank you for having me. So, it must be uh, an exciting time to be uh, the Director General and Component Commander Space. Uh, your department is in, in a growth stage and doing more than ever. Um, last fall at the Canadian Space Summit uh, that you were at, you said you would be adding 120 people over the next five years, almost, I believe, doubling the amount of people in your command. Uh, are you on track, and how many will you be adding this year? So, um, yeah, it's actually, it's actually. I think I, I was, uh, wasn't accurate um, last fall. Uh, it's been clarified for me that it's 120 civilian positions um, over probably about eight years, and it starts in 2019. So like a lot of the defense policy, um, a lot of it doesn't actually kick off until 2019, um, other than you know prep stage. So number hasn't changed, still 120, plus I've been given about an extra uh, plus of 20 uh, regular force positions. Right now I have about 60. And, and like one civilian, you know, admin position. So the intent to uh, civilianize a good portion of what we're doing in space, um, a deliberate decision because of uh, the kind of expertise we need, the challenges with rotation of military folks. Um, space, a lot of times, is a different requirement for not so much on the deployment side, although we do need to send folks out on deployment. So it's something we can do with, uh, with experienced civilians. Um, and that was one of the opportunities that was opened up in the um, Strong Secure Engage. So still 120, uh, starts in 2019. I'm trying to pull forward a few this year, um, which is a challenge before, uh, before the money really starts flowing as, as the way that the whole 20-year program is phased and, and the money is, is meant to flow. Now, are there any potential challenges in a change in government or do you see that, uh, you know, the program would just keep moving forward? So, you know, if a government changes, that's always, you know, it's always their prerogative to make changes. The difference, the difference with this defense policy is it's, it's not just a promise of a block of money and sort of a wish list of projects. This has been costed and programmed over a 20 year time frame. So uh, if a new, if another government wanted to take money out of the defense budget now, they have, they would have to identify where is it coming out of? If this space program costs, you know, X amount of money, uh, and the government wants to cut the budget by a certain amount, would they say, you know, they'd have to say it's got to come out of this space project, that that aircraft purchase, that you know, ship building, whatever? They would they would have to identify if 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 you uh, if you accept the fidelity of the um, financial planning that's gone into this 
defense policy and the 20-year plan. Okay, if you're going to change that, either you know, show me where that planning was wrong or where are you going to take it from. And with the civilian component of it, that's not an unusual thing within different government departments. Well, I suppose not government departments, but I mean in other militaries, bring in the civilian workforce. Uh, it's not, and it's actually not necessarily um, different for us. But um, you know, I guess it's a lot new of DG space. What's that? It's new to DG space, though. It's new to DG space. Yes, uh, you know, we've had some involvement with contractors and those kind of things. But to have defense civilians. Um, integrated throughout the program, it will be a kind of a bit of a cultural shift, which we're very conscious of, um, but I think it'll be the right one. So, you know, for example, one of the positions I want to try and bring in is a, is a, a, a special advisor position to DG Space, so that as officers like me rotate through that, that director general position, you've got someone that's there, maybe, hopefully for maybe 10 years, that has all the, the, uh, all the background, all the, uh, the awareness of the projects, Thing, you know, information on meetings that happened, you know, two years ago, so that as, as folks, as military folks rotate through, that civilian cadre uh, can can provide a, a continuity. And to educate myself, how long is the rotation for yourself as DG Space? So it's normally two to three years. It's been shorter in the last few years for different reasons of last-minute changes and that kind of thing, but. Um, I'm going into my second year. I've asked to stay here for a total of three years at least because it takes a while to get up to speed on the portfolio. So it really depends, but uh, the intent is to make it give some more stability to it for sure. Yeah, I would think that it would must be quite challenging for somebody to come into a new role every two to three years, especially when of this capacity. So is there any thought to actually extending the the term that somebody is serves as a DG? Well, it's something that I'm pushing for right now. Um, but the, the, um, the broader question there that we need to, the broader issue that we need to address is, you know, we've been dealing with space. Uh, it was at one point uh, a director level team. It's uh, a few years ago, I transitioned to a DG level team. Now we need, we, with the level of ambition that we're talking about, we need to look at how we're managing what we refer to as the joint space cadre, which include folks from the Army, Navy, predominantly now the Air Force, and then this, including this civilian component. We need to find a way to grow a director general space that has space background. Because right now we're using the way we're managing it is we use uh, other, uh, other trades, like in the Air Force, um, engineers, um, aerospace control, uh, control folks, um, myself as a pilot, um, and we may or may not come in, especially at the DG level with space background, it takes you a while to spool up, but we've got experts, you know, at different levels. We need to, we need to create a more deliberate how we're growing space experts uh, so that eventually we will have a sort of a program flow, just like we do in any other trade, where someone comes in as DG space with space background. Looking to the future a little bit, uh, I mean, we have traditionally, you know, we've had the, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force. I mean, is space going to be such a important and larger component that it stands sort of on its own at that level? Uh, so with the size of, uh, of a cadre that we're talking about, no, it won't be big enough no, to true, be on its own. 10 years down the road. 
Uh, no, I don't see that in our, in our current vision. Just would just wouldn't be big enough. Um, and you know, the reason this capability was built under the Chief Force Development, so sort of as a joint organization, it, it, it already grew to a point where it kind of needed a little bit, little bit more care and feeding that. It was assessed that something like an environment, in this case the Air Force, could kind of wrap its arms around it. We, we pulled this over to the Air Force and we're just going now through the process as an Air Force, we're going to spend five or six months uh, um, kind of assessing, doing a mission analysis of, okay, how are we going to do this as an Air Force? So we're now responsible uh, functional leadership over two domains, the air and the space domain. Uh, some people will argue that there's a continuum between those two. Others will argue that they're really not the same, but there's there's maybe uh, overlap in some of the skill sets. So as an Air Force, we're going to go through that dialogue and figure out, uh, you know, for example, should DG Space stay as a, as a DG Space organization? Should we uh, pull apart pieces of it and embed it in the Air Force? Uh, do we create a, uh, you know, something like, uh, you know, the 4th Canadian Space Division? So in the Air Force, but more of a divisional level. So we're going to have that dialogue. We're going to decide as a force, and then we're going to move forward. Uh, so as you're growing, what are some of the other challenges that you're facing that are keep you up at night? So the biggest challenge we have right now is we try to transition from uh, where we are to where we're going. It's all about people, uh, qualified people. Um, you know, I could argue that uh, that the uh, the force structure that was that existed prior to the new policy, uh, I am I am amazed at what that small team, the, the the base that they created. Well, now we're we've added, you know, three significant projects, uh, uh, greater integration with allies, the requirement to figure out how to defend and protect our space-based capabilities, um, and I don't have any new people yet. So we're already leaning forward on that, just like a lot of other elements of, of, the, uh, of the defense policy. We're all trying to lean forward, but again, it's very, there's a very deliberate phasing and flow to the money and the projects and the time because you can't do everything at once. Everybody, you know, like the pipeline to get through Treasury Board approvals and those kind of things. There has to be some strategic discipline. We're a part of that. Um, so that's the biggest challenge is how do we set the conditions uh, for the growth path that's been set uh, with the, the, the human resources, the actual skilled folks that we have now, as we talk about, as we work on spooling up recruiting, dealing with retention, uh, do we have the balance right? What's the right, you know, the mixing in of the civilian cadre, all of that. So to me, the most important issue is people. When, you, when you're doing recruiting now, and maybe not so much now, but maybe in a couple of years from now, do you think that because you're recruiting and you're telling people you're going to be working on the space component that that's uh, something that might bring in more people? Uh, I think it's absolutely uh, something that will attract folks. Um, and not only just attract folks, uh, it may be a way to retain folks, um, to, to retrain skilled, skilled individuals that are looking for something different. And in fact, it's one of the uh, it's specifically one of the factors that our commander has asked that we look at in this analysis we're going to go through is how does the Air Force uh, wrap its arms around what space provides from a recruiting retention uh, point of view. So you could have someone in, in, a, in a given trade that's you know, 
maybe feeling like they're plateauing and we may be able to offer uh, a transfer to a space uh, occupation or to, to a space role uh, that would be exciting to them or something back and forth. Uh, so absolutely, it's, uh, it's uh, something that we're looking at as a positive for sure. Um, in her presentation at the Space Resilience Workshop, which was held on Monday, Lieutenant Colonel, is it Lieutenant Colonel or Lieutenant Colonel? I always get it. I never know either. Uh, Catherine Marchetti uh, said uh, it hasn't been since 1998 that there's been space policy language in uh, in a Department of Defense policy document. Was it difficult to convince your colleagues to add that language and to recognize the need to? Uh, No, it was not difficult and it's because of the reality of what's happening in, um, in the space domain. So what we're referring to as the four C's, which I'll talk about tomorrow in the presentation, um, the congestion issue that's going on in space right now, um, you know, currently about 1,500 satellites on or- orbit uh, operational, uh, forecast to go to 10,000 in the next 10 years. That and all the space debris issues um, uh, are certainly raising the concerns of all the allies of the safety of our assets on orbit and what we rely on them for. Uh, the contested piece, the second C, so congested, contested. Um, there's been, for more than a decade, there have been countries that have the ability to affect capabilities on orbit, either either directly by you know kinetic means or, or cyber attacks or those kind of things. Um, it, that's a growing concern for, for, for us and for our allies. Um, so those two Cs mean w- the freedom of maneuver that we've enjoyed in space. Uh, may not be as guaranteed as, as we've come to rely on. Uh, and the third one is the competitive piece. So everything that's happening in industry, the, the cost coming down, in cost of entry coming down, uh, the disruptive, uh, if not you know, extremely innovative capabilities that are you know, on orbit or soon gonna be on orbit, the commercialization, com- you know, companies are doing things that used to be only the purview of governments. So again, all that all that adds up to more activity in space and a lot more commercial interest. Those three C's, the fourth one is the convergence of those three. Any one of those three could convince you, hey, we need to raise our game in space. When you look at the convergence of that, uh, and that messaging, that understanding of what's going on in that domain was available when this policy was you know, going through government and they heard it loud and clear and that's why, specifically in this document, in this new policy, it was recognized we need to build on this, what we've created, and, uh, and go faster. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people realize that, uh, you know, it's been over 60, 60 odd years. Uh, the buildup of 1,500 active satellites at this point, right. and then to take that in, in within the next 10 years, potentially to take that over 10,000, that's a very potentially scary proposition. Right. Well, I don't, I don't know, scary. It's just it's a reality. And but if I if I compare it to an airspace, just from a uh, congestion point of view, you know, I've heard estimates that we're tracking probably about 20% of what we would like to be tracking. You know, in 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 the last 60 years, I think there's only there's been about four uh, uh, satellite satellite collisions. It might not sound like a lot, but when you've only got you know up to a thousand fifteen hundred um, active systems on orbit, um, that's not insignificant. If I told a, an airspace commander that I was only going to track twenty percent of what's coming into the airspace, they would 
not be happy. So we definitely need to raise our game in things like space situational awareness. Um, and, and, you know, in some cases too, the, the classification level, the previous classification level of some of these capabilities on orbit has prevented sort of a, a public awareness. You know, I'll be honest, prior to taking over this role a year ago, I had no idea what we were doing in space. And yet I benefited from what space systems provided uh, throughout a 30-year career and never gave it a moment's thought. One last thought on, on, on the number of satellites. I mean, when, when you have these mega constellations, uh, OneWeb is now actually starting to look small compared to what SpaceX wants to do. Mm -hmm. um, and these are commercial efforts. Yep. Uh, and most of them will be in uh, you know, lower Earth orbit. Uh, you know, it doesn't take much uh, when you're talking about those number of satellites. Uh, uh, you know, you get something crashing into something else, and the amount of debris that causes. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think there's enough of a regulatory environment to make sure that these uh, commercial entities uh, will, you know? I mean, it's not in their interest to have something uh, hit something else, but these things happen. Will they be able to have enough resources to understand the, the mitigation? And yeah, so so there's so I'm aware that there's there's international efforts underway to um, um, sort of in, increase the, um, the sort of mutually agreed best practices in space. Things like if you're going to put something up you got to have a plan when it reaches its end of life, either to push it in a graveyard orbit or, or have a way to take it out of orbit safely. Um, and, you know, I have heard questions before about, you know, are commercial actors going to, um, you, know, uh, you know, not have the due diligence for, the, for those kind of issues. And I say absolutely not, because when you're using investment capital to put up such a significant, you know, type of capabilities. It's absolutely in their best interest to make sure that it, uh, it's uh, not going to be in the way of anything else, or or vice versa. Not going to, uh, you know, some other systems aren't going to, you know, cause it an issue. So it's in everybody's best interest. It's one of the thing, things that's interesting about space. Everybody, it's in everybody's best interest that's in space to cooperate and collaborate because uh, just because of the nature of the domain. We hope that translates to all international actors, but not always. Yeah. Um, while not falling directly under your command, how do you think the Innovation for Defense uh, Excellence and Security Ideas program may benefit your mission and what you're trying to accomplish? So I'm very excited about the Ideas program because um, as we move forward on, on current and certainly future projects, um, we're just we're going through a mapping exercise right now to try and understand all of the different um, research and development uh, programs that are on currently on the books and are be planned. Some of which through the ideas program. Um, we're going through a mapping exercise and we're trying to link it to all of our future projects to, to try and understand who is working on technology and capability that we're going to be interested in in, five, in the next five to ten years. And are there any gaps? And if so, maybe we can influence at that. So uh, being part of the Air Force now, we contributed to some of the questions uh, that made it into the ideas program. They were racked and stacked amongst all the environments. Uh, and a couple of the space ones are in there, which I'm happy to see, like space situation awareness and those kind of things. So uh, very interested in, in what that's going to provide. And we're, gonna, we're actively engaged in trying to influence that. 
20 year program or? yeah I think it's like I think it's like 20 years a certain amount of year yeah so <clears throat> recently the Aerospace Corporation Center for Space Policy and Strategy uh, used the US Canada military space relationship as a case study for other alliances and wrote uh, very positive things about the relationship Considering how limited the resources have been on the Canadian side as compared to the U.S. side, how difficult has it been to maintain a consistent, successful, long-term relationship with the U.S.? So we have we have very privileged and deep ties with the U.S. through things like uh, uh, NORAD, which will, which is just about to celebrate its what, 60th anniversary. Um, and one of the things I find as we're all the allies recognize that we need to, um, nobody can do everything that's required in space with all that convergence of those, the four C's, the four, the four C's including the convergence element. Uh, nobody can do it alone. So we were working well together before. We're now ramping up uh, in a significant way that cooperation and collaboration with things like um, the U.S. Joint Space Operations Center, which my Canadian Space Operations Center, my CSPOC, uh, there are deep links there uh, that JSPOC is now transitioning to a combined space operations center in the next uh, couple months to, to accelerate that uh, five eyes cooperation, collaboration, and in some cases integration on um, things like space situation awareness. Uh, and you know, other countries are, are interested as well because, again, it's, it's in everybody's best interest to deepen those levels of collaboration with the level of activity that's going on in space. So, has not been difficult in the least. The only issue has been sort of bandwidth, uh, but because of what's been built over decades through things like NORAD and NATO and, and those kind of organizations, we're in a great position to uh, build on the position that we have right now, especially with the U.S. Now. Totally changing topics here. Mm -hmm. As you might be aware, Maritime Launch Services is attempting to build uh, a launch facility in Nova Scotia mm -hmm. and provide launch services uh, in Canada and obviously to international uh, customers. Should that project move forward, what it, what might it mean for you and, and would you be interested in, in using the facility? I think it's in, there's zero question that in my mind that is it is in the defense best interest to have strong industrial base in Canada. Um, it just it just opens up op, uh, options for all of our projects and programs um, uh, as well as uh, those subject matter experts that you know in, in some cases uh, perhaps our civilian positions maybe there can be some rotation of folks between industry, Canadian Space Agency, defense. Uh, so it's absolutely absolutely in our best interest to to be supportive and encourage those kind of capabilities. If there was a, a launch capability in Canada, uh, absolutely we would take advantage of it. Why would we not? I think that you, you answered my next question, which was related to that. There are efforts underway, at least uh, and at least one that I know that is, is credible, to develop an indigenous small satellite launch vehicle in Canada. So if such a vehicle existed, you're saying that it would be something you'd be interested in? Absolutely. Uh, the more options we have for launching capabilities, uh, certainly in, in, in country, um, and potentially even in sharing with, you know, uh, launch capabilities with allies uh, would be uh, welcomed. Is it strictly a policy, obviously it's a financial issue, but strictly a policy issue as to why the capability hasn't develop, been developed from 
let's say the DNC side, and you could also say from the civilian side, government side? Uh, launch capability? Launch capability. Yeah, we just have... I mean, we used to have it, but... Yeah, uh, until we haven't had the, the, the scope and scale of activity that would support it, certainly alone within defense uh, in the past. And I'm even, not even sure if it would make sense for defense to have its own launch capability, even as, as far as I can see into the future right now. Uh, there's so many organizations provided that are opening up those kind of capabilities and, you know, international, you know, issues and policy aside, um, I believe, you know, getting on launch um, schedules has been, a, has been a limitation, I've heard in with industry partners. Uh, so anything that can add to that, I think, uh, will be, a, and, and bring and keep bringing the cost down, I, I don't see why that w wouldn't be a value. Transitioning to another project now, the, the Radarsat Constellation mission is expected to launch. As we found out yesterday, I think that's the first time I've ever heard somebody mention a date, yeah. which was 174 or 76 days, I think, uh, of yet from yesterday, which, yeah. which would put it uh, uh, on November the 7th. And of course, that's always a, a notional date because mm -hmm. with launch, as you know, yep. they move around. Uh, can you characterize how important this mission is and, and what will it mean in helping you accomplish your mission? So as we've transitioned from long ago, the RaiderSat 1 capability, now the RaiderSat 2 capability, which which MDA owned, but we buy services off of, um, unique capability, and RCM is not the same as RaiderSat 2, my team tells me, different beam modes, different capabilities, but with the three satellites providing a global coverage uh, and an increased revisit rate, um, the capability that that's going to provide, we we have because of the success of things like Radar Sat Two, combining it through our Polar Epsilon ground station and uh, with the um, uh, automated IDENT system, the AS system on uh, ships. Uh, yeah, so Radar Sat Two and RCM are not the same capability; very different. Uh, but Radar, what Radar Sat Two, Polar Epsilon, and combination of AIS, what that's provided in. Uh, maritime domain awareness, for example, uh, and other and other capabilities, uh, the world has the world has changed a lot since that even RadarSat 2 was launched, and even since RCM was conceived more than I think it's almost a decade ago when the project started. Um, uh, so we knew we obviously knew, knew what it, we we would be interested in, what it would provide, where we're at now, and where we're clear we're going. Uh, the requirement has has grown. I could almost describe it as exponentially for that capability. So far beyond what, what it was designed to provide, uh, it, we're actually going to need more than it can provide on launch now. Both because both because the world has changed and our requirements have changed. We, we recognize more now what those kind of capabilities provide, and with the with the synthetic aperture radar and AIS now on the same uh, on orbit and together, reducing the latency. For maritime domain awareness and, and coherent change detection of, of things going on uh, for uh, uh, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance you know, capabilities, uh, uh, we are waiting. Uh, it's a significant increase in capability for us, and we can't wait for it to get on orbit. Matter of fact, I think we're going to, our appetite for those kind of capabilities is so high, I think once it launches, I think we're still going to need support from Radar Sat 2 uh, and other 
capabilities to meet all of our needs. That'll make MDA feel a little bit better now that they're not going to be able to commercialize RCM at this point. Um, we'll still get some capability out of radar side too. Um, so based on what you've just said, and I'll, I know it's not on the books, but uh, having an RCM follow-on is, is I'm, from what I'm hearing, is something you'd really like to have. So we already have, uh, it's already listed in the, um, absolutely, it's already listed in, the, um, in our defense policy. It's called uh, DESPI, uh, Defense Enhanced Surveillance from Space Project, DESPI. Um, the Canadian Space Agency has a follow-on, their SAR-DC Data Continuity Program. Uh, those two projects will could be uh, overlapped to some measure or not, depending on how they both proceed. But absolutely, um, with the uh, RCM, I think it's... Uh, life design is around 2025. So given the length it takes to get projects uh, projects rolling, we're absolutely going to start. We're already starting on a follow-on. And uh, what about optical? Um, do you need any optical capability or do you get that from your partners? So there's a lot of different sources for that, some unclassified, some classified. Um, but with, uh, with DESPI, uh, we're going to keep it open. So. It, DESPI is not intended uh, to be uh, just a simple replacement of RCM. It could be optical, it could be multispectral, it could be hyperspectral, it could be... So we're going we're gonna to define our requirements uh, and then we're going to let industry and technology drive uh, what the best solution is. What about, um, to supplement, and I just thought of this, mm -hmm. uh, a company like Earthcast. Mm -hmm. Should their constellation move forward? And mm -hmm. they moved one step closer yesterday. Um, so their OptiSAR? Yeah, the OptiSAR and the Earth Daily. It's mm -hmm. a combination of optical and SAR. Yes. It, should that capability be there? Mm -hmm. and, it's, and it sounds like as of yesterday, if they can come up with the last little crunch of money, mm -hmm. that they're going to move forward with uh, construction later this year. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that capability is going to come online within a few years. Mm -hmm. It moves a little faster and smaller satellite. Is that something where you would go to them as a commercial provider and say, well, you've got optical and you've got SAR, we've got extra requirements, you'd want to maybe buy the data from them? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Or that, you know, that kind of a system could be an option for our DESPI program. Once we get to, once we get an RFI on the streets and get some feed, get feedback, sure, absolutely, we, we will take advantage of any capability that comes online. One of the things, one of the challenges we have with uh, future projects is innovation is and in industry is moving so fast. Uh, in some cases, we don't even we might not even be clear on what's going to be available in ten years time. We want to make sure that we leave ourselves open to take advantage of those that innovation as opposed to getting locked into a certain view. Now, I referenced it before, the Aerospace Corporation study. Uh, it was uh, quite an interesting read. Um, one of the things that, it, that it did stand out to me is that they were talking about RadarSat 2 and, and how it, the way the contract was designed, that uh, it, it really made it, um, data was more readily available to Canadian partners, military partners. Mm -hmm. um, in RCM, um, there is no commercial component to it, so uh, at least not in the first iteration, from what I understand. So, how readily available will RCM data be available to military, our military partners? 
So the ability to share, uh, you know, as you know, RCM is a whole government project led by the Canadian Space Agency, of which defense is a significant stakeholder, um, including, you know, we put the AIS system uh, on the bus. Um, uh, we have to be able to share with allies, certainly our 5 I partners. Um, the amount of, the amount of uh, collaboration that we have with allies I think we're at risk right now of, of not pulling our fair share. So any capability we have access to, we need to be able to share unrestricted uh, with our allies as they, as they, you know, within certain constraints as they do with us. Um, okay. So, so yeah, absolutely. There's every intent to uh, to set it up to share. Uh, and by the way, in the commercialization question, the the final approach to that uh, hasn't been decided yet. I know there's been some stuff in the media recently about. Um, so maybe initial intentions or, or desires that, that are that are proving not to be uh, not to make sense. But the final approach to how the you know, after data is available, after data has been collected, um, how that's uh, you know available to. Uh, yeah, and, and the reason why I mentioned it that way was simply because in the conference call last week by uh, Howard Lance, the CEO of Maxar, he basically said that. Uh, um, our military was going to need full use of the data, and we weren't going to be able to. Uh, yeah, so military is not going to make take all the data because we're only one of the stakeholders. We're a significant it's a stakeholder, but it's a whole of government thing. So the government has yet to put a final stamp on um, uh, final had yet to make a final decision on how that is going to be dealt with. But there will be some use of data, of data some waiting to make data available. It's a matter of where and when and under what circumstances and I know CSA is leading a group now to, to work through that yeah it's a, it's an interesting maybe not dilemma but an interesting situation based on the heritage of what happened with radar set 2 um, the enhanced satellite pro uh, communication project polar uh, and I believe it sometimes refers to it as the escape program um, it's been a long time coming and it sort of grew out of the Polar communication and weather satellite concept, mm -hmm. yep. minus the weather now. Yep. Um, looking at the procurement timeline, uh, which has changed, uh, it might not be until 2023, 2024, before a contract is issued uh, to actually get the satellite built. Why, why such a, a long lead time? Is it strictly budgetary? So it's a great question. Uh, you know, and make no mistake um, that. Capability is late to need. I've personally flown helicopters in the north uh, twice in my career in the early 90s, uh, and not having the ability to have dedicated communications when you're flying from someplace like, uh, you know, Eureka to Alert, you have no com communications until you land. Uh, it's a significant issue and, and something that needs to be addressed. Uh, I think I understand the history of why PCW, you know, eventually didn't work in the context at the time. Uh, but now we're you know we're reattacking it on just the comms front. The RFI just closed yesterday, That's right. uh, and now we'll go through the process of the business case analysis to figure out uh, of what what the options are and how, how fast we can move forward. We deliberately described no later than 2029 as the as the initial operation capability with the timelines you mentioned for contract. You got to understand that this defense policy 20 year plan is is fit into a, an accrual envelope. If you, if, you, if you consider all the projects 
as kind of marbles. There's big marbles and there's little marbles. And you've got a box that you have to fit it all in over 20 years, you know, going from 0.9% of GDP to 1.4. That's pretty aggressive. Uh, and you have to do it in, with some strategic uh, uh, discipline. So to do that, projects were moved back and forth, not always just based on need. Or it was in some cases, if, if I move this there, it opened up space here for aircraft, ships, all the people initiatives uh, that, we'll, that we need to move, move out on as well. So that was a very challenging uh, uh, planning effort. But now we've got a 20-year plan, and in some cases, my space projects are kind of locked a little bit further to the, to the right than I would like operationally. Uh, but if I were to try and move it left, um, what am Something I going to what am I going to bump? Right. Am I going to bump fighters, ships, people, uh, you know, issues for people? Um, those those are challenging questions. So we're moving out on the current plan, but we did ask for industry to let us know if they could do it sooner. And, and for this project in particular, um, I can't even answer the question if I can move it left until I get the responses back. Because if someone says I'm going to do a managed service, uh, you know, public-private partnership or a managed service option, geez, we could do that. We could do that really quick, um, you know, programmatically. If it's we're going to put up a couple of, you know, Canadian satellites to link into other systems. That might take longer and then if we bring on international partners which there are some that are interested canada's never done that level of coordination from a contracting point of view that'll take a lot of time maybe it's not even military bandwidth it could be you know pspc um, uh, contracting folks could be that could be a, a limit so can't even answer the question no no question uh, operationally we want to do this sooner but we've got to work it in the total plan uh for, for We've got to fit it within the total plan. So for all of our space projects, we certainly want to have them ready to move to the left if some opportunity opens up. The, the plan's not even a year old. Uh, I expect there might be in other programs slippage and changes. If and when that ever happens, I want our space programs to be ready to move left uh, if, if it makes sense. So that's why. It's a bigger picture issue. I've been in the high Arctic a few times on working on some some projects, and I understand from that perspective the comms issue. Um, as a stopgap, um, because obviously the Arctic the the issue is not going away. It's just a matter of what, how it and when it gets addressed, and this will uh, solve the problem or deal with the problem in uh, in a you know amount of time. Um, do you look at uh, companies like Telesat that are putting in a new LEO constellation that'll service the Arctic? Is that something that you can take advantage of? So here's the here's the blessing and the curse of a great twenty year plan. Uh, right now, we've had I've even had discussions with my team on a couple projects of if we can't get this move moving quicker for all the reasons I just talked about, maybe we can do some interim thing. Maybe we can you know get a contract to do you know cover this gap or some kind of offset. The problem is, and it comes back to our discussion about people, if I do that in, in most cases, actually in all cases so far, I always end up with, I would have to take someone off my existing projects to bring them on this interim project. And, and again, if I need us, depending on the dollar amounts, if I need a, a treasury board space, I, I gotta bump something. And in most cases I'm bumping my own projects. And in fact, I would delay further 
my final my my actual project. So that's the dilemma we're right now. Is just a mat it's a matter of people bandwidth. Um, there have we have to have some discipline on. Do you wait and do you accept some op operational challenges now um, to make sure that you to protect the longer term project, uh, or can you not do that? So. And that'll and those assessment of that will change, you know, over time. But right now, uh, we're just stepping off on this plan, so we've got to have some discipline. Uh, I'm going to ask a question that's sort of related. Mm -hmm. uh, projects like RCM and Escape, you know, these are long-term, larger projects. Um, <clears throat> in terms of capability, um, are you looking at the small sat small satellites as a something that you'd be interested in in building your own small satellites for certain capabilities? Uh, so currently, specifically, no. Um, not, not in the, in the RCF DG space elements. We're, we're, we're maxed out on the program and the projects that we have already. However, like I said, uh, as we go to industry and say, we release RFIs, if they have small sat solutions, we're absolutely open to them. So... Not focusing on small sat specifically, but certainly would be open to that as a as a potential course of action for sure. I, I see that the uh, you know the ability to put up satellites, I, and I have no idea about what kind of requirements or sensors you would want to put on those. But uh, the ability to launch them quickly, replenish them, it's a it's a it's a capability that. Uh, yeah, so for example, we, we have a project uh, surveillance of space too. So we have a Sapphire system on orbit now that's contributing to the space surveillance network. Um, it's doing great, um, but uh, we know we need to replace it. Um, we'll go out with an RFI this year on that program, and, and we're going to ask for a certain number of years, a, a time period, to have, a, a, a certain, to have specified outcomes. If somebody comes forward and says, hey, instead of putting up one satellite that'll last all that time, I'm going to put up smaller satellites every every year or every two years and give you that capability, fine. So we're really trying to be open to the solutions. And you're happy with Sapphire and what it's doing for you? Sapphire is an absolute strategic success. Um, I think that project was less than a million, less than a hundred million in total, or somewhere around a hundred million. Um, and, and because of the congested, contested, competitive, all that stuff that's going on, the level of interest and um, uh, that is one case where we are providing uh, a highly valued capability into that spacious situational awareness uh, that we need to a capitalize on to b continue. Uh, in some form, which we're working on for sure. And NeoSat, uh, after it had its issues resolved? Uh, so I haven't had any specific involvement with NeoSat. Um, space resilience, space system resilience appears to be a topic uh, that's uh, getting a lot of attention. Um, what about uh, the problem of cyber and, and how it can disrupt your ability to fulfill your mission? Uh, it seems to me that, uh, I mean, I remember going to Cyber 1.2 in Colorado Springs, and every year it seems to be growing. And how do you, I mean, is it part of your purview? So everything in, everything in space, whether on orbit or the ground components, 
it's all ones and zeros. So it's absolutely an issue in everything that we do. Um, currently, Director General Cyber sits right across from me in my office in National Defense Headquarters. Um, as you're probably aware, the part of the defense, uh, the new defense policy has a big cyber component as well, of which space will be integrated with, so for sure. Um, in, for example, the Air Force is going through uh, an audit of sorts of all of our uh, um, cyber vulnerabilities to make sure we understand uh, what our current status is and, and areas, gaps or risk areas that we need to close and work on. Space, absolutely. Yeah, it's absolutely a core part of what we do. And are you spending, uh, doing anything in terms of space weather? Uh, space weather can certainly disrupt so yeah so part of part of that allied cooperation from my, my Canadian space ops center my CANSPOC uh, they're linked in with the JSPOC and we get uh, we're regularly we have regular we're weekly meetings uh, uh, along with allies to understand what's going on in space for sure um, and I don't think I mentioned but we have about 30 folks uh, 30 um, Air Force folks in uh, the NORAD mission deployed in the United States, some of which are in actual the, the Joint Space Ops Center, uh, working on things like contributing to, under, you know, keeping our awareness up on space weather issues. So, yeah, absolutely. Yep, tracking it daily. Two two questions. Um, last one, which is, is there anything that you'd like our audience to understand better that maybe I haven't discussed? Geez, nothing really comes to mind. Um, I guess just sort of the wider awareness. I'm kind of the I'm kind of the poster child of a lack of awareness, even within our force, let alone sort of nationally. Uh, I'm almost embarrassed that I didn't understand what was happening in space. the The reality of the four C's and what that means. Uh, you know, it's opportunity and risk. There's opportunities in what the innovation will provide, uh, economic development for my country, the industrial base, um, our ability to, um, you know, Canada is has the second largest land mass uh, and the population of California. So when you look at things like surveillance of our nation, uh, communications, navigation, uh, to say that we can benefit from space capabilities, you know, would certainly be an understatement. Um, I'm. I'm disappointed I didn't understand that before taking on this job. So one of the things we're really trying to do as this capability is moved to the Air Force is be that advocate and that voice to make sure, certainly within the armed forces, uh, but even if we have opportunity to talk with uh, Canadians of all stripes, um, to make sure they understand what's going on in space, those advantages and those risks, we become completely dependent on a lot of space-based capabilities. Things like, you know, the timing signal for our ATM machines. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated by some exercises that I've heard about of a day without space. If you actually turned off space for a day, I'm, there's no doubt my force and Canadians would be shocked at what would stop and change. Uh, and that's something that we need to deal with. That's why, the, that's why all the focus on the defend and protect and the resiliency issues of... Um, I think the, the public got a taste of that uh, when the ANIC F2 yep. went. It was an accident, right? Yep. Uh, uh, software, and they repositioned it, uh, and people were without their phones, without their ATMs, they couldn't buy gas, and uh, I think that was, uh, some people were quite shocked that, right. why can't I do this? Right. And we've, we've come to the point now where, uh, you know, 
we were so reliant on it that if we did have that, let's say, go a month without space, yeah. that, what would that do yeah. to our economy? Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to come in to, to this role at a time when that message was recognized right up to government level and, and it's embedded in our policy. It'd be a very different experience for me and my team uh, if we didn't have that kind of policy, direct clarity and direction. But that message resonated loud and clear right up to the highest levels. We've got clear direction. We've got a plan. You know, we've got to we've got to set the conditions and be ready to move forward on it as it starts. The phased approach starts rolling out. Um, so I'm thrilled that that's there. But we need to keep spreading that message uh, whenever we can, so that people understand what the opportunity and what the risks are. So my last question has nothing to do with with this okay. topic. Okay. Yeah, I ask this all of my guests now. Okay. Um, assuming you have any free time, mm -hmm. um, what books, uh, whether they're fiction, non-fiction, that you're reading that you find interesting? So my Bible for a lot of what I do is uh, Senge's Fifth Discipline. I find the, the five disciplines that he talks about um, every week and sometimes every day I run into organizational sort of a systems thinking approach issues that could be certainly uh, mitigated if if we were all kind of operating on the kind of the kind of systems view uh, shared vision you know all the stuff that he talks about I think are core that learning organization approach um, that I try to embed in everything I do uh, and that and uh, Cotter's leading change uh, the eight-step change framework so as I as I listen to you know some of the frustration of you know we just talked about it of why you know my force doesn't necessarily have the awareness I think it needs to have or Canadians the first step is establishing that sense of urgency so that that positive and that advantage and risk issue uh, message that story uh, has to be established right up front and uh, we all need to play our part in this in this domain you know, this anything that touches the space domain, uh, I think we need to raise that voice. So those are the would be two references that I would highlight. Great. For sure. Great. Share that with our audience. Well, thank you very much for, for doing the podcast. Uh, hopefully in the future, uh, we can get you back on the show. Absolutely. Uh, pleasure. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash we really appreciate feedback, and to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca, or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca, where you'll find an archive of each episode. If you send me a comment by email, I'll write back to you as soon as I can. On Twitter, you can follow us at Canada in Space. And if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, The Space Q. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.